All right, good morning. Hey, can you guys believe that we are almost exactly two months away from the end of our year of biblical literacy series? Two months. It's been 10 months. And I know, well, I know honestly that the last six months have been kind of weird. Um, But it's like we're two months away from the end of this thing. It's kind of weird. I'm going to miss it. I'm going to be honest. This has been really fun for me uh, to read through with you guys, to preach through, to to talk about this stuff as we've been in our small groups. Uh, This has been a really, really enriching time for me personally, and I know it has for many of you as well. Uh, So if you have been with us, um, we've been teaching through major themes as we've been reading through the Bible, and uh, we just finish up, finished up um, uh, looking at uh, Jesus through the lens of the Gospels as we, led through the, as we read through the Gospels. And now we're finished reading through the Gospels and we're uh, reading through uh, the letters, um, finishing out the New Testament. And so our series that we're in right now, Preaching on Sunday Mornings, is called Because of Jesus. And so uh, because of what happened in the Gospels, we see uh, how that is being played out in the, the, in the early church in the New Testament. Right. And so we're looking at that picture and going, OK, because of Jesus, because of what Jesus did in the Gospels. Now, how do, what are the implications for us? And so as we read through the New Testament, um, we're asking that question because of Jesus. Now what? Right. So so last week, if you remember, um, we we said because of Jesus, there's this radical new unity that has been formed um, in and through and by his life, death and resurrection. We now have a radically diverse unity that never existed on earth before uh, Jesus came. And so now uh, the, the, family of, the family of Christ is going across racial barriers, is going across all kinds of barriers. And so we're now seeing that in the New Testament as, uh, as Pentecost happened and as Peter is preaching to the Gentiles and as God is giving him visions uh, that the Gentiles are now included in the grace of God. Uh, we're seeing this radical new unity that's taking place. So Today, we're going to move on from unity into uh, because of Jesus, then we can be generous. So because of Jesus, generosity. Before we get there, I I just want to address something. I left last week really frustrated. Um, Not at you. Not at how many people showed up or didn't show up. I left frustrated because something that I said in my sermon, I said in such a way that I didn't want to say. And so I feel like I need to go back and address that in order to, to make clear Uh, something that's on my heart and something that's not on my heart. So what I said was, um, we we were talking about this idea of unity, and then we talked about, you know, in 2020, we have issues flying all around us, and and the statement that I made basically was that we're fighting the wrong battles, and that uh, we need to fight this battle for unity and not fight these battles. That's not, that's kind of how it came out. Um, and so speaking specifically of racial reconciliation and COVID-19, the two big issues that are kind of blowing up in our world today, specifically in our country. So I just want to clarify something. What I meant when I said we're fighting the wrong battles is that we have to fight for unity as we have these conversations. I wasn't trying to say that we shouldn't have these conversations uh, or that those things aren't important issues. They are unbelievably important issues, but how we fight for unity, if we're going to address this right through the lens of uh, the Gospels, because of Jesus, we fight for unity, and if we are going to fight for unity as believers, we have to fight for unity the same way that Jesus fought for unity. How did Jesus fight for unity? He picked up a cross. 
And so the point that I was trying to make is that if we want to fight for unity and if we want to see uh, reconciliation happen racially, which, by the way, read the book of Galatians. That's what it's all about. The book of the book of Galatians is basically telling us that because of Jesus, because of the gospel, racial barriers uh, can be melted. Racial barriers can be reconciled. And so we should be having those conversations, but we have to, we have to walk into those conversations as Jesus would walk into those conversations, carrying our cross. And Jesus not only carried his cross, he carried our crosses as well. And so he said, if, if you want to follow me, pick up your cross and follow me. And so as believers, right, we're asking this question, because of Jesus, we now pick up our cross and follow him. So we have to pick up our cross and walk bravely and humbly into those conversations. Does that make sense? I, like, I don't think that, uh, I mean, I'm probably being a little bit oversensitive in how I took that comment that I made, right? I was offended by myself, basically, last week. Um, but I just wanted to make very, very cl- clear that I believe deeply in racial, racial reconciliation. I believe deeply that, that we are in a really weird time and there's this virus going around and we have really polarizing opinions about it. And so as the church and as Christians, we need to walk into those conversations humbly. And what we see on Facebook, and that's what I addressed last week, what we see on Facebook is not that. We do not see radical Christian unity on Facebook and on Twitter. We don't and we should. Amen? All right, here we go. Walking from unity into generosity. So because of Jesus, we can be generous. And so here's the question I want us to ask ourselves as we walk through this idea today. I want each of us to ask the question, am I generous? Am I a generous person? Right? I want us to set aside all the pretense of what we think we should be Because if we walk into that question with that idea in our mind of what we should be, then it's going to shape how we answer the question, right? Because we're not being honest. I want us to honestly and without pretense, believing in the gospel, right? That Jesus covers all of our shortcomings. I want us to simply ask the question, am I generous? Am I generous? How am I generous? Am I only generous in some ways? In many ways? With all people? With some people? Some of the synonyms for generosity are big, charitable, fair, good, honest, hospitable, lavish, unselfish, willing, bounteous, excellent, free, kind-hearted, noble, and open-handed. That's a lot, right? So the question we're asking is, is that you? Is that me? Do, do, Do the majority of those words we just used, which are synonyms for generosity, describe you personally, and do they describe us as a collective people? who have been bought with the blood of Jesus, who have been brought together as a family, do those words describe us? Now, uh, before I get into this, I just want to address something. Uh, I'm not preaching this sermon because our church is in a uh, money shortage or there's a budget crisis. Um, We're good. Everything's fine. Uh, I'm preaching this sermon because we're walking through the New Testament, and this is a major, major theme. If you look at the Gospels, and if you look at the epistles, and the letters that Paul writes, and that Peter writes, and all the other New Testament uh, authors write, generosity is a giant, giant theme. And so we're, we're looking at this because of that and not because um, I can't afford to feed my kids or something. That's not, not the case. What we want to do, what we want to do today is look at the scriptures and know confidently that God wants us to be more generous than we currently are across the board. Okay, there is no standard, like you reach 10% and then you're good, right? That's not a biblical idea. 
you will not find that anywhere. What God wants from us is growth. What God wants from us is a little bit more of ourselves, right? Each and every day. He wants us to grow in generosity. There's, there's not, the, the idea here is that we wouldn't see the church's bottom line click up slightly so that then we could do more things. The idea here is that we would grow in generosity personally and corporately. That's the idea behind what we're covering here. So in the Bible and in the New Testament, we see uh, generosity primarily springing up from two sources. Number one, primarily and most important, receiving generously from Jesus is where our generosity flows from. Okay? Our generosity springs up from receiving generously from God. Okay, we give because we have been given to. This is the idea of living open-handed. You've heard that phrase before, and quite simply what that means is that we are open-handed so that we can receive from God and that we we discipline ourselves to live open-handed so we don't try to um, control what God has given us. We allow it to flow into our lives and we allow it to overflow out of our lives into the lives of others. That's what it means to live open-handed. Number two, the identity of the church and the unity that we experience is motivation for, uni- motivation for generosity. So two things, and we're going to cover them both, right? The first one, we, generosity springs up from receiving generously from God, and our generosity springs up from the identity of the church and the unity the, that we experience as a part of the church. Now again, looking back to next week, we're not, to, to, to last week, we're not talking about conformity, right? We're talking about diverse unity, a difference in um, income, a difference in... Uh, race, hopefully, a, a difference in um, political standing. We have all these differences, but we can be unified because of what? Because of Jesus, because of the gospel. The gospel is more important than all of those things. That's what we believe as Christians, right? That's what we believe. We believe that Jesus, his life, death, and resurrection, and his person, who he is, is more important than anything else in life. And if that is true, then we can have unity. And if that's true, then we can be generous. Unity that results in generosity. We're going to cover these backwards. Okay, so we're going to start with unity that results in generosity, and then we're going to cover um, generosity that flows from the gospel. Fresh in your mind last week, hopefully, was in Acts, uh, the book of Acts, this phrase. He used it twice in Acts chapter 2 and in Acts chapter 4. Uh, having all things in common, right? So if you spend much time on Facebook, you think that sounds like communism, right? That's not what, this is not communism. This is the gospel, okay? Very different. Acts chapter two, starting in verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the needs or distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Acts chapter 4, starting in verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them. 
For as many were owners of lands or houses, sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was uh, called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, we have, they have all things in common, right? And it's all happening where? This is really important. It's happening among them. Okay, It's happening among them. This is something that typically gets lost in these kinds of talks or these kinds of messages is that their generosity was primarily to each other. It was in the church. It was in the family of God. That's where their generous, generosity primarily took place. Okay, In Acts chapter 6, there's this, there's this scene where um, the, the, the Greek or the Gentile Christians, they called them Hellenists, um, came to the apostles and they had a problem. Okay, In Acts chapter 6, it says, Now in these days the disciples were increasing in number, and a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Okay, so now, the book of Galatians, right? Uh, racial reconciliation is taking place, but there's still sticking points. Okay, and so we still have to walk in humility, and we have to understand that we're human, and bad things are happening, and we have to repent, and we have to solve these problems. That's what's happening here. Okay, so the, the Gentile believers came and said, hey, there's an issue here. The Jewish widows are being taken care of. The Gentile widows are being neglected. Okay, so there's an issue. It's not, it's not uh, an objection to a, a, a slice of the general population being neglected. It's a slice of their church that's being neglected. A slice of the people of God that's being neglected. And so we see that they're still fighting. As we talked last week, they're fighting for this unity. And we see it here. They're fighting for this unity in generosity. But it's happening among them. Okay? We're not neglecting the poor of the world, but we're seeing, uh, Jesus said, they will know your, my disciples how? By your love for one another. Okay? And so sometimes we twist that and think they'll know that we're disciples by our love for the world. And that's true. But Jesus himself said they will primarily know that you are my disciples by your love for one another. And the church has become so spread out and, and has said, no, we're going to do it this way. No, we're going to do it this way. No, we're going to do it this way with all this backbiting and nitpicking that we have not fought for this radical unity. And so it shapes us. But I'm going backwards. I'm going back to last week. Matthew 25. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. And before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. And the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Right? He's, he's repeating this in the negative. It, when you didn't do this, after this, he repeats it in the negative, saying, if you didn't do these things, then you neglected me. If you did these things, you did them to me. If you didn't do these things, you neglected me. And then the, the people say, well, when did we do this to you? Or when did we neglect doing these things to you? And the king will answer them. Jesus says, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. 
Now, if you read through Matthew, the only time Jesus ever uses the term my brothers is when he's referring to his disciples. So when he says the least of these, my brothers, he's talking to the crowds, he's talking to this giant group of people that he's addressing, and when he says the least of these, my brothers, he's pointing at his disciples. This primar- the primary focus of this radical generosity and this radical unity is within the church. Again, we're not neglecting uh, feeding the sick and the poor and the homeless of the world, but if we are not willing to be generous within our family, and that's what this is, according to the Bible, because of the gospel and because of the unity that we experience, we will never experience what we have been meant to experience. Sharing generously all that you have with family is the most natural thing in the world. And the problem is that we don't think of the church as family. We think of it as church. I'm going to church. We don't think of it as something that we have been uh, entered into, we have been adopted into by the king, by our heavenly father. This is why the, the New Testament writers use the idea of adoption so much. We were adopted into a family. That's what this is. It's a family. And generosity uh, amongst my family is pretty easy, except for with my teenagers. Sometimes it gets a little trying. Amen? None of the teenagers raise their hands, but whatever. Listen, okay, think of it this way, right? Dads. No mom, I think, has ever been guilty of this, but dads, when you are left at home alone with the kids, it's not babysitting right? They're your kids. They belong to you. You're a family. When you babysit or when you watch somebody else's kids, that's babysitting. When you watch your own, it's called being a dad, right? And we understand this idea. We understand that we are a family. And so uh, when uh, my daughter or my son, one of my sons takes something out of the fridge, I go, I don't typically, well, sometimes, I don't typically say that's mine, Right? Sometimes I do, if I want them to learn a lesson about responsibility and thankfulness. But what's mine is theirs. It's their house just as, as, much, as much as it is my house. I bear more of the responsibility of that thing, but it belongs to all of us. Imagine how generous we could be amongst each other if we thought of our church as a family in that way. Right, this is what we see in Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4. Right? They were selling things and bringing them and laying at the apostles' feet, and everybody had all things in common. Imagine how, like, there's no, no, no wonder the world looked at them and went, something is different, because something was different. And if we look at ourselves, and we look at the world around us, we go, we go to church on Sunday. Like, are we that radically different from the rest of the world when it comes to generosity? Statistically speaking, we're not. Statistically speaking, we're not. If you watch the trends in charitable giving uh, in the unchurched secular world and in the church, they follow the same trends. The same economic confidence in our giving is what dictates the world's giving. And it should not be so. It should not be so. Randy Elkhorn, if you haven't read his book, The Treasure Principle, probably the, one of the greatest books I've ever read on this idea. 
He says this, God comes right out and tells us why he gives us more money than we need in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9. It's not so that we can find more ways to spend it. It's not so that we can indulge ourselves and spoil our children. It's not so we can insulate ourselves from needing God's provision. It's so that we can give and give generously. As we grow older, most of us, right, our our, uh our income grows as we grow older, right? We stay at a job longer and we get raises or we work our way up the ladder or we get new jobs, or right? This is what we do. And as our income grows, sometimes we need more income because our kids, right? As they get older, they don't eat less, let's be honest. But as our income grows, our generosity should grow as well. Now, the greater source of generosity And how this arose in the early church is through the power and the truth of the gospel. Generosity is a response, should be a response by us to what we have been given by God. Genesis chapter 12. God's speaking to Abraham. He says, I will make you you a great nation and I will bless you and I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. Open-handed, Right? He's telling Abraham, I'm going to bless you so that you can bless the rest of the world. Abraham was going to be God's conduit through which he would bless the world. Genesis 50. This is uh, Joseph speaking to his brothers after they sold him into slavery in, into Egypt. And, and then through Joseph, there was this huge worldwide famine. And through Joseph's wisdom, God actually used him as an official in Egypt to feed the rest of the world. And so this, he, his brothers come to him and this is what he says. As for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good, to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So God, through this tragedy of, of Pharaoh or Joseph being sold into slavery, he gained in stature and gained in income, right? Gained in every th- way that you possibly could as a human. And through that, the entire world, millions of people were kept alive. God was generous and it flowed through him to other people. It was God's plan to bless the nation. Psalm chapter 24, verse 1, The earth is the Lord's, and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. Colossians 1, 6, For in him all things were created, things in heaven and things on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. This is the reality of common grace. Everything that exists belongs to God. Everybody take a deep breath. That breath was given to you. It's a free gift. It's called common grace. The lungs in your body that work uh, normally, or for most of us, somewhat normally, right? They are a gift. Do we view them as such? Or do we think of that just as something that we biologically have because we're humans? Do we think of things that simple as a gift from God? It is all his. Taste, laughter, a sunset, our kids, the ocean, our taste buds. Uh, this last week, my wife and uh, kids and I were camping in eastern Oregon, the high desert wilderness. We were camping at 8,500 feet. So this comet, has anybody seen the comet this week? Right? That thing looks pretty spectacular at almost 9,000 feet. There is no light pollution. There's no pollution. There is nothing blocking you from the night sky. And it was unbelievable. And we sat there and looked at it every night. I looked at it through my binoculars while my friends called me nerd. 
uh, because I was staring at the sky. But it was unbelievably, unbelievably spectacular. Everything that we saw this week as we hiked, as we spent time in the outdoors, we saw the creation of God. And everything that we saw is a gift. Everything that we saw was because of God's generosity towards us. We get to enjoy these things. This is what makes the cross even more stunningly evil. The very hands that were created to worship and serve him are beating him, ripping out his beard, shoving spears into his side, putting nails in his wrists and his feet, flogging him beyond human recognition. The very mouths that were created to sing his praises and his glory now spitting on him and cursing him. We've taken the generosity of God as humans. We've taken the generosity of God and we've owned it for ourselves and said, we've created this. I'll do with it what I want. John 3.16, right? For God so what? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. We miss that sometimes because it's such a common verse. We see it on posters, coffee mugs. We've all memorized it. We all know it. Even if we didn't, weren't raised in the church, most of us know that verse. But we take it for granted. To who did he give his son? To the whole world. Romans 5 eight. but God showed his love for us that, in, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't die for good people. He died for sinners, wretched sinners, who have taken the generosity of God and said, mine. Ephesians chapter 2, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Why? So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Going back to Ephesians 1, verse 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Every spiritual blessing. He's saying this, All I give to you. But again, instead of living every day in awe of what he has given us and living open-handed because we've been given so much, we go, mine, 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 mine. Ephesians 1 verse 8, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according, listen to this, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. Now, this word, this Latin word, uh, means uh, to spend or bestow profusely. Includes an element of washing or pouring like a torrent. Think back to the, the heaviest rainfall you've ever experienced in your life. That's what this is describing. That's what this is describing. It's a word that you might use to describe passionate lovers who are overwhelmed with love for each other. Moms, dads, you remember the moment at when you first saw your firstborn child. Right? You were overwhelmed with love. There wasn't anything you would do for that little human. 
That's what this word is describing. This is the kind of affection. It's unquantifiable. It's even reckless. This is the kind of recklessness I show on Thanksgiving when I pour gravy over my entire plate. It's reckless. It's irresponsible. Sam, you can't possibly eat all that. Watch me. It seems wasteful, shocking. This is this, that word lavished upon us. That's what the, that Paul is trying to get across to us. His grace and his goodness have been lavished upon us in ways that we can't imagine, that ways that seem over the top. He has given so much to us. It's an obscene amount of grace. And as a result of this, you and I, okay, some of you will know this phrase and some of you won't, we're playing with house money. You're playing with house money. Now, if you have ever spent any amount of time at a casino or watched any casino movies, you know what that term means. It means that you came in with nothing, you have nothing, and yet you have been given millions of dollars in chips to play. And by the way, you get to keep everything that you win. You're playing with house money. You've got nothing to lose. So if I'm playing with house money and I've got nothing to lose and none of this really belongs to me anyways, I give more freely, don't I? Right? Every time somebody walks by the blackjack table, there's one for you, there's one for you, just because. Imagine if we lived our lives that way. Imagine if we gave that way. Imagine if we were that generous. If we understood that everything in this world belongs to God, none of it belongs to me, everything that he's given me is meant to be lived open-handed, it flows through me into the lives of others, instead of terminating on me and just making my life better and better and better and better. Because it's mine, I worked hard for that. Eh, we worked for that. Luke 18. Okay? Jesus is going to show us what exactly he's talking about here. Luke 18, verse 18. A ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Or verse 1, rather. No, verse 18. Sorry. And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, all these I have kept from my youth. So he's like, I've kept the law. I've done all this. What's left? Jesus heard this and he said to him, one thing you lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Come and follow me. So Jesus understood that this guy was willing to keep the rules but he wasn't willing to sacrifice in order to follow Jesus. He wasn't willing to give up what was his in order to follow Jesus. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he he had become sad, said how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, then who can be saved? But he said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. Now we fast forward one chapter to Luke 19. Okay, Luke's trying to make a point here. Jesus enters Jericho, 19 verse 1. He entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. He was a little guy. 
I, I, I describe a, you know, a four-year-old when I say little guy. I don't know. So he ran on ahead and climbed a sycamore tree. You know the story, right? To see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. This right, takes us back a few weeks when we talked about Jesus being the friend of sinners. Okay? It would be culturally unheard of for Jesus to go into a house of a tax collector. Jesus was a Jewish, godly rabbi. And he's going to go into the house of a tax collector. I must stay at your house today. So he hurried down and came and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone to the house to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. You see what happened? Jesus gave generously and the response was what generous generosity right again this takes us back to the story of the woman that comes in and washes jesus's feet with her tears and anoints his feet with this expensive perfume and jesus has a conversation with one of the pharisees about you know two people who are indebted to a master one with a little one with a much and he says he who is forgiven much loves much do we understand how much we have been given if we do it will result in a bubbling over of generosity in our hearts if we don't we'll continue to grasp things tighter and tighter hoping that we won't lose them despite the fact that we have been given everything This quote is not universal, but I think it makes a point very well. G.K. Chesterton said this, Among the rich you'll never find a really generous man, even by accident. They may give their money away, but they will never give themselves away. They are egotistic, secretive, dry as old bones. To be smart enough to get all that money, you must be dull enough to want it. Now, I know several really generous rich people. So this this, this quote uh, doesn't go across the board universally, but I think if we were to take this quote as, again, hopefully we're still asking ourselves the question, am I generous? I would just follow that up with, do we know how rich we are? Is this describing us? Right? It's easy for us to, to read this quote and then go, yeah, man, those billionaires, they give away a, a million dollars, a fraction of what they own, and then they get their faces plastered in the newspapers and go, ooh, they're so generous. Yeah, and we shake our fists. Could this be describing us? Money is not the only commodity we have to give. We have our time. We have our presence. Think about giving someone your full and undivided attention in 2020. Uh, I was just telling uh, several people, uh, we were in the wilderness all week, and on Sunday mornings, I get an alert on my phone about my screen time for the week. Uh, and I got an alert this morning that said my screen time for this last week was down 85%. Because I was in the wilderness, battery dies, uh, my kids were trying to charge their phone and ran the car battery dead. Um, but 
You know how wonderful it was to go on a five-hour hike with my kids and not one of us looked at our phones the entire time? That's something that we have to give others is our presence. And yet we hoard it. We have time, presence, ourselves in service. How about honesty? Honesty is something that we have to give. What if we confessed our sins generously? So there's this idea about repentance is that it's always negative, right? We repent, we repent, we repent. Say your sins, say your sins, say your sins. What if our honest and generous confession was a way of opening up our view of the the unbelievable riches that have been lavished upon us in forgiveness. And the more that we confess, the more we understand how much we've been given. The more we confess, the more we realize how much we have been forgiven. And that results in more generosity in our lives. Can you imagine Jesus giving 10%? What if Jesus only gave us 10% of himself? All right, Jesus was the most generous man who ever lived and he had no money. He was poor and homeless. It's not simply about dollars on the spreadsheet. It's about our entire being. Jesus emptied himself, it says. Emptied himself. Now, we have to address practices versus values. Right? Practices versus values. Because we can do generous things and not be generous people. You see the difference? Do we value generosity? We want to begin practice generosity because we value the grace of God in our lives. Our generosity has to flow out of the the grace of God in our lives and the unity that we experience with the people around us. How much should I give then? As much as God wants you to give. I don't know. There's only one kind of giving I don't like. Begrudging. Begrudging giving and giving with strings attached. That somehow I'm owed something because I gave this. That's not generosity. That's called quid pro quo. It has no place in the church. It has no place amongst us. Most of us know the song, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. And then there's the common refrain that we've added, Oh, praise the one who paid my debt and raised this life up from the dead. Giving all to Jesus is a response from having your debt paid. Do we understand how much we have been given? If we understand how much we have been given, then we will give generously. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we love you. And God, we ask that you would show us how much we have been given. That as we continue to read through your word for the next couple months and finish out this year that we have spent reading through the Bible, Father, that that we would be shown daily your generosity in our lives. That we we would see daily the unity that we have been given and the family that we have been given through your life, death, and resurrection that you have unified us with your blood and that nothing can separate us from you or from each other, if that is true. And Father, that these things would, would motivate us to give of ourselves in every way, that we would hold nothing back. We would hold nothing back from you. We would hold nothing back from each other. 
We ask all these things in your name, amen.